Lost My Love Homicide Series, Volume 1, by Karishima Yoga Gan Na Ra Sim Ha. Prologue. The sun paints her rising orange on a lonely evening at Villa Supendus. There sits Maria Pakara at the balcony, sipping hot lemon tea and talking to Pamod on the phone, greeting him good morning. The talk is sexual, as they've been away for a while now. Minutes later, sun disappears in the horizon and darkness takes over the place, with the crickets chirping in a creepy, monotonous tone. The call ends. Maria, Maya, takes a moment to finish her tea while she stares at the dark woods from her balcony. With a book in one hand and an empty teacup on the other, she walks back into the kitchen to talk dinner. An hour later, her dinner's cooked and the clock ticks 8pm. She looks at the wall clock. She serves herself the meal and sits at the dining table, fiddling for no- notifications on the phone. Suddenly, it's nothing but silent, accompanied with creaky crickets chirp. Author's note, driving into the world of imagination. I think I created situations, revenge tales, one of which I started to weave a series of homicides, all linked to a series, single motive or character. This is the first book in a series of the reader. It's about experience, a journey spun by a silent killer. A murder is in front of you, is in the front, and yet so impossible to notice. I hope you enjoy reading and experience the factual mystery. Some of my work, other work, that I also write, don't forget to read horror files, poetry, which are now available on Horizon, Amazon in your country. Do share your thoughts and comments on Amazon and Goodreads to help me write better and bring with you more interesting stories and captures your mind. The Book of the Bird and Bear £9.99 A collection of poetry by C.S. Hughes and it combines the naive with wonder at once extraordinary and childish, outlandish and achingly familiar, surreal and rendering personal, often with a flavour of nursery rhymes of prayer, myth or spell, quite often combining both people throughout with sometimes amusing, sometimes sometimes obsessional, sometimes less array of birds, cats, birds. Bears and stranger creatures. Available at bookdepository.com. A five star recommended book for the Jose Remar podcast show. No Looking Back by Lana Saunas Diggins. Introduction This book, which has been a long time coming, I have thought about writing so often. I've tried to start several times, but just could not get it, get into it. Ever since having read Dust Dreams, Living the Outbreak, published and released, having a lot of people ask me about my own education, I decided finally that the time is right. Basically, no looking back is about just about the complete opposite. It's about looking back, looking back at my secondary school days, all six years of them, and my memories from those years. 
which were awful. In the years since leaving school in 1972, I often had nightmares, and I certainly cannot tell them dreams, not even bad dreams, about trying to leave that leave the place, trying to leave that school for good, even for the same reason in a dream. I only gone back for a very short time, a week or a month or whatever. I still have problems with leaving. I know I do eventually get through that time, thinking it's only temporary. I'm about to leave again. It's time for good. Most people I knew were wonderful memories of the school days. I thrilled when reunionism announced. Not me. I intended one reunion that city about 20 years ago and decided never again. Not, not saying that I didn't enjoy it. I did, to a limit. I didn't really want to accept and attend it, but did. Out of curiosity, most of the girls I saw were pleasant enough, all except a few were day girls or day bugs, as we used to call them. I hate to think that they called us. They they did they, they did talk to me. They were nice. I even talked with a couple of the boarders. Also okay. We weren't friends at school, but years have passed, and most of have grown up and matured. But there's one particular boarder for whom I would never be friends. She disliked me from the outset. That's never changed. It's no loss to me. But I'm interested to see how it would react towards me at a reunion. I saw her across the room and thinking that the other couple of the boarders had already spoken with were pleasant. I thought I'd try to approach her, see what happened. She saw me turn coming and turned on the spot, walking the other way. A quick look she gave me, even though I smiled at her. It was a real smile. Well, let's just say it's no loss. We'll never be friends. And yes, I was bullied, mainly verbally, but believe me, that hurt too. Sometimes it more than physical bullying. About school, yes. I did have an awful time during my six years in a border. And at school, I do not blame school or staff for a minute. I was... It was a very good school, certainly one of the oldest and the best in the city. But most of the boarding schools were, and some still are, full of history, including mine, something of which they should be extremely proud. Being bullied and disliked as much as I was from the go to what blow wasn't pleasant. I couldn't wish it on anyone, particularly as a boarder. There's no escape. Most of mine was verbal, but a couple of physical incidents have been described a little more in the relevant chapters. And yes, I did complain. Once this occurred back in, back in the 60s and 70s, being bullied before bullying and light were really acknowledged. But I did eventually complain to a couple of the staff members, but responding with suggestion I should get try hard, hard to get along with the other girls. Okay, that wasn't going to work. I knew it, so I didn't help. I also tried to tell him, tell my parents, just once, and was ignored. These days, bullying is acknowledged and taken very seriously, and usually, not always, acted upon. Our meals at school were lovely. We must have had kitchens off to do the cooking, but I do remember being on the roaster on the dishes. I think it was a help yourself, a little servery between the kitchen and the dining room. We used to have good old-fashioned Faithful roast, lamb, pork and chicken on Friday nights is a real treat, even if it happened every week. I would not have missed for anything, even one particular Friday when my mouth was full of ulcers. I had a sore throat, pimples in my mouth, cold sores all over my lips. 
There's no way I was, I was not going to eat that roast. I put up with the pain of was agony. I always lose salt, and as far as I was concerned, what's a roast without salt and gravy, especially homemade gravy? Although I think the gravy we had in our roast at school was from a packet, given the number of girls they had to feed. Nevertheless to say, the salt only aggravated the pain. They're still at. Our sweets, puddings, desserts were yummy too. Neither that or we were just too plain hungry not to eat. I had no idea whether we had any vegans, vegetarians or vegans amongst us. They were not catered for if they were. Acknowledgements. To acknowledge anyone for the writing of this book is something I am sure about. I really don't know who's to acknowledge, or indeed, if anyone should be acknowledged. It's not exactly a pleasant book. I hope readers might realise if you, if they have been bullied, or still are, just attending boarding school, and with unpleasant memories, they are not alone. Here, thanks must go to my daughter for her unbiased editing. My childhood is out back. I have very happy memories of my childhood. Growing up from our family station, it was different, not that I realised it then. I think I figured all the children that lived in the country had similar childhoods, didn't they? No, they didn't. Even an occasional trip to the city and seeing other children, May, one, one or two cousins, it never occurred to me that their childhood was different to mine. Or should I say, perhaps mine was a different one. As I found out a few days later, when everything started to change, I was sent down to boarding school. There's no idea how old a person usually is when memory starts to kick in. But the earliest mind is one of the staying the same with some of our neighbours so they with some of our neighbours on their station. It was my fifth birthday, actually I'm not sure, but that was true for for reason, for some reason. Every time I have thought about this, the age of five keeps popping up, so I was sticking with it. Mum and dad have gone to Melbourne for the Commonwealth Games. My brother and my next one up, I stayed with my aunt and uncle, not blood relations, on this station, and mentioned above. I have a photo, good old black and white, my brother and me sitting on the lawn, surrounded by my parents. I was in my moo-moo, I think that's the proper name for it, but I've never known it's that, so I stick to moo-moo. Being raised in the outback, you did not necessarily do the same things as city children did. Most of the playtime was outside the fresh air, running around and getting plenty of exercise, which I think was probably pretty normal for most children sitting in the country, but we couldn't visit our friends to play unless we planned to stay with them overnight or something. They were far too far away. I consider myself very fortunate in this respect, as I did have my youngest brother and our cousin. The later was not was a lot about more gammon than I was and constantly was a leader in everything we did. She also had some friends from the city who used to come up and stay sometimes. I really was not a part of that. But when we were by ourselves, we did have some fun times. Television was introduced in the 1950s and 60s. We had a brand new set in the lounge room. Initially, we had the ABC. Some years later, local network, Channel 4, began. All black and white. The today's viewing started with a good old test pattern before getting into the scheduled programming. Got news, of course, the weather, and some other programs in the very early days. Our telephone was a pretty party line, too. Switchfall was very, was only open at certain hours. 
So we had to make or take any calls in specified hours. Being a part of the line, there's always a chance that anyone connected, i.e. stations communities around, could hear and would be listening in. Reckon it was the best great line in the world. CWA, Country Women's Association, was a very strong in those days. In fact, it's always been a feature of women in the country. Being both rural and remote, I understand my paranormal grandmother was one of the first presidents of our local branch, followed by mum. I've learned more recently than above mentioned. Cousin mother was also involved with CWD. But I think it must have been a different branch. Mum was a present present for what seemed like forever to me. They even had a special hell built, which remains to this day. Oh, now completely unused, as far as I know. I, used, I even tried to start the GCGA, Country Girls Association. One girl turned up, but only but only because she had to come along with her mother to CWTA meeting. The CGA lasted one whole day. I never became friends with any of the other girls of my Asian district. Education provided school there, ASOTA, based in Fort Augusta. This end of the year got together. It was a lot of fun, and it was something to really look forward to it. It was time we got to meet face-to-face the other station children connected to that Scott A. In those days, it was the only time we saw them and had got a chance to play with them. We got together and cl- got together and inevitably play. I was cast and married one year. That was wonderful. My parents were really were very proud of me, but not as I, that not that I realised it at the time. Too nervous. I was given the wrong words for the singing. I found myself moaning the whole way through, and maybe heartily congratulated but afterwards, maybe I missed my calling in life. While well, my memories of my Scott are not numerous, there are a couple that must ring to mind. Bud was one of them. Another one was my birth. On our birthdays, particularly, it fell on a weekend. At the end of the day, daily SWA lesson, students were allowed to share any news they had of anything they felt was important. Well, my birth is very important. Usually such occasions mentioned by a teacher, this has not happened on Friday, so I figured I needed to do something about it. So I did. The teacher responded, and she planned to mention it on Monday. Okay, I accepted that and thanked her. A few minutes later, however, I heard footsteps approaching down the veranda. They were heavy, fast, and were definitely on a mission. Mum, whoops, Mum listened into the radio lessons through the set in the lounge room. I, I would have heard me. Those footsteps meant I was in trouble. I was. I cannot recall what exactly happened, and I don't think I want to. All I know is that what kind of, it kind of dampened my birthday somewhat. I dreaded this to listen on Monday, as I knew the teacher would, would Mention it. The Earthlings, W. L. Wright, Chapter One. This way, come on, you can do it. Rila could hear the voice and see the strong hand reaching out through the tunnel to wave her to be saved. She wanted to grab it, but she already knew trusting the wrong person could be deadly. Earth was ending, and other planets were saving some, but they could not save everyone. The entire chaos escalated since the spaceships began arriving to save people on Earth. Before that, everyone either lived or died together, because there was no way out for anyone. People moved around, but eventually they 
there was nowhere to go. Everything had been swallowed up, with holes growing larger and larger. There was nothing but swollen lava, where the whole entire cities once were. When the ships first arrived, people were afraid, not believing, intent, fearing the worst. No one believed in life or in other planets. There were so many that when, when, when there were so many that were never did. Different ships from different galaxies landed, sending messages out that they were there to save as many people from Earth as they could. When the first person left, no one ever saw or heard from them again. So there was a risk, but it had come to the point it was the only chance of survival, and everyone's convinced. Almost at once, the Earth was on its way to becoming a black hole. The tickets were given out for a giant lottery that erupted mostly in bright colours. Tickets for one were taken away by others, many dying just for winning one. In the time before Riella had bought, had a family member, mother and father, sister, brothers, but it was over and its end of an unpleasant memory, she tried not to call. She never had time to grieve any of it. Survival was always at stake. She had already achieved, avoided many potential traps. She got a ticket from another kid called Trevor. He was on his own, too, it seemed, but, he, but hadn't made it. She was there until he died, dragged him to hiding, confronted him, comforted him. She was shocked when he handed over his, her his ticket. He thought it must have been, had died trying to hold on to it, but never gave up. Dealing her him was difficult for her, as part of her wanted to sit quietly with him till it was over for her too. Everyone was after everyone else, looking for tickets for their own escape. There was no law, and all the left. There was the law of the jungle, and Rhea was surprised he had survived this long already, scraping by running from one hiding place to another, finding food anywhere, and drinking water without a thought of sickness. From where it, it, where it was from. Since she got the ticket, she was trying to get to a ship. A ticket worked for any ship. You didn't know where you were going. You just knew you were going away from Earth. She was ready to try to make it to the next stop. As after her experience, anything seemed better than what she left on Earth. When it first started, no one really put it together that Earth was ending. Big sinkholes started opening on the earth all over the world. Politicians blamed it on cars, factories, while religions blamed it on their guard. But no real change of anything ever happened. And Rila thought it was because no one really tried to do anything at all. It was just talking on top of, of more talking. Everyone pointing fingers at everyone else. Come on, there isn't much time. If you don't grab my hand, I'm going. I'm leaving. She heard the deep voice above her, saying his hand, trying to use his own luggage language to urgency for her to grab it. He had take a lot of risk for so long before, so long that everything felt like one. Even now, where she, if, where, if she didn't grab her hand, she knew it probably wouldn't get out of here, there. She held her breath and grasped her, the hand and was hoisted up helplessly. Do you have a ticket? The man standing in front of his hand, still holding her, said. Maria didn't didn't answer. She knew. If you answered yes, you'd probably take it. Can you not close and whispered, I have one. If you have one, too, maybe we can each other get to a ship. Her face looked tired. His, his face looked tired. His dirty, 
His clothes, tattered, his new fashion as a business looked long ago, and fashion was a distant thing in the past. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm sorry, kid. I'm sure you have been through a lot. We have. But if you're a kid, I see how it was. That would be. I'm amazed at any time I see a kid, you know. He said, looking at her sincerely, the dirt his face, lighting up his green eyes. How old are you, Rico said. He laughed. Not as old as I probably look as you, to you, girl. I'm 17. And what are you, like 12, 13? He said, looking at her like a scientist investigating a flat rope. I'm at, I'm 15, actually. Rhea, Rhea, said, giving him a smirk, and they both laughed. It felt aged like Rhea's, since he had laughed at all. So what's your name? I'm Rhea, she answered, answered him now, feeling less nervous. He was about to, t- that he was about to end her life. Nice to meet you, Rhea. I'm Macbeth. Huh, yeah, right, both. They'll be appearance, right? He said they both laughed together. See, Rhea, do you have a ticket? He laughed again, and Rhea felt her nervousness increased. Don't worry, here is mine. Macbeth said to unfold a piece of paper rag. He wore his pants, revealing uh, the bright blue ticket edge. Yes, I do have a ticket, Rhea replied. Sit, but seeing the truth revealed, and revealed her own ticket to Macbeth, turning ahead to make sure that no one was paying attention. Great, let's get up the ship together. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of being alone. Macbeth has uh, said, smiling at her, still holding her hand. Sounds good to me. And me too, really, replied as both began walking. The street was full of debris, business closed and looted by people, desperate to make it to another day. They both could see the ship in the distance. It, was, didn't, it wasn't close enough for either of them. Between them and the ship would be the most dangerous part of the journey. They were hunted with tickets, were plentiful of roads to the ships, waiting to pick up people from Earth. When we get a bit closer, we make a plan to get through, right? Looks like everyone seems to be looking for food, giving up pretty much, Macbeth said after just a few steps. We relieved her hand. He walked side by side now. Do you have any weapons? Freela asked hopefully. No, not at the moment. I had one. It was a great one, too. But I, the last fight I got, got in, they took it away from me. I'm lucky to be alive. After that one especially. Macbeth said his face. The uh, only thing really the struggle of it. Oh great! Well, it looks like we're going, uh, go, uh, we'll go, go, it on our worlds. All I have been surviving on anyway. Rhea said, but regaining her confidence, they both, well, they would both make it to the ship and glad for the company. So, that's a that's a planet you f- you think the ship is from. Macbeth said, looking up, the ship was very large and. Blue in colour, breaking, beaming light from every angle with triangle shape. I don't know, don't know. Do you know anything about about them? Rila asked to imply. She heard her stories, but the way things were, you couldn't believe anyone, it, it seemed. No, not really. I probably heard the, the stories you did, but not. But no one has ever come back to say who's right, who's wrong. I'd rather take my chances and ship. But it sure don't look like there's any chance there. Macbeth said, replied pensively. Just as he said these words, a single sinkhole opened up in front of them. They both jumped back as it spread, and the others, not so fortunate, fell into the molten pit. Go, let's go into this way quick, Macbeth said as he grabbed her hand and began to run through the holes round the world's hedges, getting bigger and bigger. 
But he was just about past it all when he slipped and almost fell in taking Rhea with him. Rhea tugged his his hand. She didn't want her fate to be tied to his. She made sure, made it this far on her own, and the ship was close enough to make it. He held it tighter, but letting go as he ran ahead. Others were running now too, everyone on the road to survive, race to survive. I don't think she, I think we should keep running now, Rhea. Rhea, he said, it kept the pace. Rhea yanked back at him, feeling they had passed the danger. What are you doing? He said, dropping her, stopping now and turning to look at her. Running wildly is not the safe land in my option, she said, and just as last word came out, she felt herself slipping. Looking back, she was surprised to see the hole gaping behind her as people screamed. Falling in, Macbeth held her hand tighter, pulled her forward. That was close, he said, gripping his dirty brow, wiping his dirty brow with her other hand. Now, what were you saying? He said with a smirk. Rita began running, pulling him forward without responding. Another close call, ending a life, moving on quickly. The people screaming to the death filled the air. Stop, stop, Macbeth said, pulling at her trying to get her her to stop running now. They were far away from the danger of growing growing sinkhole. It stopped growing. They grew fast and stopped. They would start growing again for a few within a few hours, continuous all the whole area. Rhea did not stop running and she wanted to make it. She did not she felt that like she was really run out of, of her nine lives. Finding her bare friend to her and grabbed her, stopping her. He stretched his arms, holding her. Listen, we're okay now. Stop running, he said, still holding her tightly. Rita struggled not to cry. She leaned, learned already any sign of weakness as a signal to others. She was easy prey to take things away from her. She pulled away, and she released, he released her as, he, as she wiped her eyes. The dust, you know, those have no holes, he said, trying to hide her emotion through. Yeah, the dust has gotten to me a few times too. He stroke, really, really replied, smiling at her with a face of understanding and struggle. Wheeler turned and looked back. The ship had looked a little closer now, but still not close enough. What's your plan when we get closer, she asked. I'm not sure. We'd better make one. I'm thinking we could try and see them before they see us. First of all, after we try to get by whoever it is without seeing them, me, us, there isn't a lot of cover. Here, I think, as we get closer to where the ship is, you might there might be more. At least I hope there is. He's also looking at ships suspended in air. That sounds good to me. Pretty much a plan. I've been uh, throughout all this. Stay hidden and out of sight, Rhea said, sighing. Do you have any food? I don't have... I haven't found anything all day, Macbeth said, looking at her with hopeful eyes. I have what's left of an apple. I found in a tunnel I was in. It's brown looking, but I haven't gotten sick yet. You might have to rest if you want it. She said, putting a candy in her inside pocket, a long coat and pulling it out. Beth grabbed it. He hadn't eaten days. You sure? That was not just yesterday. He hadn't eaten, Rebecca said, watching him devour the brown apple. Regular saw the man approaching them. And then Beth tried to fill himself at the apple. Look out, she said, and the man got nearer, raising his fist in the air. Get back! Macbeth shouted as he stepped forward towards him and swung his fist as hard as he could at the man hitting him. Square on the chin, the man fell to the ground. That's funny, he said, throwing the call on the floor and grabbing her hand as he started running. Wheeler followed 
shot at his luck, his luck, only one shot. Really, looked back and the man remained on the floor, looked out cold. Others were now moving towards him. They still were able to think a few things ahead. They aren't going to find any food, for that's a sure reader. That is thought as he turned back, back, looking forward again, keeping up with the best pace. He stopped then behind a burning a building burning out from the previous riots and part of a succession of events before the spaceships arrived. Did you see something? Rhea said, Shh, they're right there. I think they're de- de- definite trouble. Macbeth said, whispering them and pointing below the waist towards the steps where the group of people were sitting. Rhea looked at the group and saw that Macbeth saw. Each of them looked strong and violent, and the violence looked like their mentor. They all had weapons and made of them even truer. Thus, there was at least seven of them, and the two wouldn't have a chance against all these adults. What are we going to do? How can we get past them? Maybe we can go another way, really, said Ars, looking around to another route, she spoke. Maybe we can wait in the building until we move on. Hide here, like Beth said, looking into the rubble. My Little Friends in a Mirror, a mirror book for babies. Beautifully written, illustrated, and designed. What is the baby in the mirror? My Little Friends in the Mirror is a fun and interactive mirror book for babies who encourage play with their favourite friend in their own reflection. Babies don't recognise their own reflection until they're around two years old, so a mirror becomes an ever-entertaining playmate who is also great for learning and development. This is a tough ball game with none glass mirrors designed to withstand baby jewel and toddler tantrums a mirror on every, every face and baby can roar shuffle and chuckle along with the fun animal characters some adults find it just as fun as a baby a story behind the book somewhere deep in the fog of the sleep deprivation of early parenthood a crazy one idea came to life about creating a mirror book for babies. We were the two first-time mums who met at a local parents' group in Brunswick, Australia. We noticed that the little ones were absolutely obsessed with mirrors, constantly giggling, giggling, kissing and dancing with their ready-made friends in a mirror. We couldn't find a good mirror book anywhere. So we sat down to make a ball book just for babies, which is jammed full of mirrors to play with. We quickly developed what discovered why mirrors are so uncommon in books. It's difficult to find good quality non-glass mirrors and pretty costly to integrate them into book books. Lucky for us, the idea of a mirror book struck a chord with others and 190 feet, wonderful generous supporters for our Crown Family campaign helped to fund and illustrate the batch printing of My Little Friends in the Mirror. We privileged to team up with a super talented illustrator, Michelle Carlsland, to create marvellous animal characters for the book. And then, after negotiating the strange worlds of specialists, printing and bulk importing, we also found a great printer who's willing to put in the time and effort to produce such a complex mirror book. Back in 19, uh, early 19, 2019, 
Our mad idea became a reality. We're really smitten with it, and we hope it creates lots of baby giggles and slobbery toddler kisses in a home near you. My little friends in the mirror, $21.99. Please go out and support the book. You can go to www.babyinthemirror.com.au if you're interested in buying this fantastic five-star rated book from the Holes of Vimar podcast show. Mango Seed Doll by Karini J. Falling, illustrated by Harry Ivinieri. Favoria. This book belongs to You are smart, beautiful, and one of a kind. Another you will never find. So let no one tell you. Otherwise, I'll try to recreate very one one thing that we could never duplicate. Because this is just one of you. Be your best self every day. Be you, love, Karini. I dedicate this book to my husband Scott, whom I secured and loved, to my sons Nathan and Carl, who continue to soar above all things, knowing that nothing is impossible if they believe, to my daughter Kaylee Lee, keep letting your creative imagination run wild and free. I cannot wait to read your books. Funny to my sister Faith, who always been there for us. I love you, hold holy, the mango seed doll. My name is Solemn, and this is my story. I was born in a tree, covered in a blanket of leaves. There I hung with my brothers and sisters. When I was big enough, I was moved from the tree and placed in a large tray with the others like others, like myself. With the others like myself. Although I was no longer part of the tree, I was still safe inside my cocoon. Ah, my childhood. Best days ever. Inside the cocoon, I was covered by a firm yellow-orange pulp that could be eaten. It's juicy, sugary, sweet, and a tropical smell. Shortly after, we moved it from the tray and placed it in the basket. I waited nervously in the basket, wondering what would come of me. Then it happened, the thick pulp that surrounded me was removed bit by bit. I came out of the cocoon, wet, hairy, and slippery. At last, I'd take taken from the basket. Cold Feet Fever Author of Sassy Romance Novels Marine Fisher Cold Feet Fever The Fever Series Book 2 Um Chapter 1. New job. Darling, it feels real good. Oh, he, you surely do have magic fingers. A masculine voice, southern, with a twist, was clearly audible over the commotion. Katie, Delucia, backed away from the closed office door. 
it would be just her luck to march inside, eager to start a new job as pl- event planner for Kiki's grand opening, only to find a junior partner in a compromising position. She reigned in her imagination. No one, not even a player like Sam Jackson, had the girl to pull a nooner during his own hiring blitz. Someone nearly just nearby must have spoken the words she overheard. There were plenty of potential culprits. Job applicants were lined up along the corridor. Several sprouted vampire teeth, while others dripped gore from neck wounds. Many uttered howls, wails, or moans. Katie had never experienced anything that was so bizarre in the workplace as a former undertaker. She'd seen some doozies. Then again, Kiki was hiring staff for its unveiling at Atlantic City's first paranormal nightclub, a far cry from its previous fetish club status. She smoothed her skirt, confident of her professional appearance, a black suit, white blouse and smart pumps. She squared her shoulders and rapped on the door. Inside, a clicking noise grew louder, then stopped. No one answered. Talking up the sound to the uncredited office equipment, she opened the door, not locked, thank you, God, and froze at the sight of a German shepherd hurling towards her. She recognised the dog as belonging to Harim Jackson, the senior partner who hired her three hours today. Uh, was earlier. Damn Rex! With a joyous yelp, Rex reared up and placed both front paws on her shoulders, enveloping her in fur and dog breath. Her knees threatened to buckle under the weight of the eighty-plus pounds of eager canine. She staggered backwards, propelled across the corridor, until plastered against the opposite wall. After a tussle, she managed to dislodge the massive paws. Rex dropped to the floor, circled twice, and licked her ankles. She made a grab for his collar. The dog danced away, sighing. She opened her goosey knockoff, eating a bran muffin for the fibre overload it packed. She extracted a sandwich. Rex froze. His nose twitched. He pointed his muzzle at the ceiling and gave a prolonged howl that caused several vampires and one semi-rotten zombie to stare possibly inspecting a werewolf. Tearing off the wrapping, she lobbed the sandwich into the office. Rex chased after it, with Katie close on his heels. While the dog gulped down her chicken with tomato on whole grain, she shut the door and leaned against it, composing herself. A surprising amount of noise, including the occasional groan from a ghoul or gobbling, filtered through an air vent above the door. Feeling calmer, as she looked around, the office was unoccupied. The faint Again, Dodd. Either the junior partner had forgotten for her arrival, or word of her hurrying had filtered down. Three hours wasn't much lead time. She was doing her due diligence on the internet. She wasn't enthusiastic about sharing an office with a junior partner. According to a chat group discussion, Sam Jackson was a player with fondness for gambling, booze and women. Not necessarily in that order. Sadly, she didn't have actually declining the first job offer she received since leaving the family business. Apparently no one wanted to hire a former magician as a plan, party planner. Determined to make the best of a bad situation, she examined her new workplace of interest. The sun-drenched office was L-shaped, a huge main area, easily big enough for two matching desks, 
several visitors' chairs and multiple filing cabinets. In the adjoining space, she glimpsed a gleaming conference table lined with chairs. A moment later, her nerves twitched. Pepperoni, garlic, cheese. On top of the highest filing cabinet sat a pizza box. Out, take out coffee and jumbo bottle of painkillers. Sam Jackson has obviously stepped out. Name Rex couldn't reach the pizza. Rex apparently an optimist. Pace beneath the food, if this wheelchair alone could topple the box to the floor. With the dog occupied, Katie slung her purse over her shoulder and headed for the conference area to check it out. She didn't get far. Rex clamped his jaws around the purse. Panny, raisin brain reference, were easy prey. A dog released another quivering howl, ending in a a sharp bark. A woman's voice yelled, Quiet! and returned to the animal services. Crap! Crappity crap! Time to leave. When she tried to tiptoe away, Rex disagreed. Glancing over her shoulder, Katie panicked. At the other end of the conference area, so alcove, she overlooked. A pair of cowboy boots lay on the floor. A garment dangled from a chair. The couch's back mercifully hid the occupants, but the top of a woman's head was vividly bobbing in rhythmic movement. She appeared highly focused, a task at hand. With growing desperation, Katie managed to pry her purse from Rex's jaws. He registered his disapproval, another howl ending in an eerie wolf-like falsetto. She prayed the couch's occupants afar, and off along in the bliss of to gnaw the interruption. Purse to chest, she backed away. She reached the main office, where the man's jaw flooded her entire body with apprehension. Much as I hate to break the mood, darling, I'd better check up on Rex. I didn't trust him near the pizza. Before Kate could flee, or dig a hole for herself, or better still, throw herself out the window. Sam Jackson, Playboy. And if she believed the internet gossip or wearing a heartbreaker, strolled out of the alcove, batting up with an amber silk shirt, the same colour of his eyes, and wearing a Stetson. He haunted and scrutinised Katie across the gleaming expanse of the conference table. The grainy newspaper fo- photos that she studied online didn't come close to how doing justice to his masculine glory. Everything about him screamed sexy, from his chiselled jaw and those sculptured lips to his streaky blonde hair, framing a face that belonged to the on the big screen. Fortunately, pretty, pack, pretty, pretty packaging didn't interest her in the slightest. Nope, no way. The man was a dedicate to the, of the highest order. As he closed in his gaze a long, literary tour of body for sitting on her mouth, she excluded a head of cologne, all woodsly and spicy and delicious. Not that she cared. Was it her imagination? Or did the expression hint at amusement? Howdy, madam, I apologise for my bad dog, scared you. But I'm afraid you got the wrong office. His voice was a little raspy, steeped in moonlight and magnolias. Katie cleared her throat. I'm in the right place, thank you. One side of his mouth kicked in up the notch. You must be here for the job, fair. Try room 204. That's our HD department. The outfit. You make a decent Dracula's there, the attendant. Broad green. Creased his cheeks, causing the corners of his eyes to crinkle. No, but thank you anyway. 
Katie studied his face. It was obvious. She didn't touch base with your boss this morning. Really? All this time I believed I was boss? About to point out his error in thinking Katie lost her train of thought. The sight of a woman emerging from the alcove. She saw a their pizza uniform with a pizza logo emblazoned on her chest. The shortest way to booty shorts in the world. Face averted, she scurried along the opposite side of the conference table towards the door. She caught up with her. Thank you, darling. Sam caught up with her. Thank you, darling. You did a superb job of calling my headache. Killing my headache. Ignoring Katie's presence. Hit the nerve to reach into his pocket, put out several bills, and tuck them into the woman's hand, saying, This is for the pizza, and it was something extra for your help. I want you to remember you're one looking, fine looking woman. Your Mormon boyfriend is lucky to have you. More whispered words triggered a sick giggle. For a second, split second, Katie imagined she detected kindness in his voice, but she must have been mistaken. He just indulged in office sex with a vulnerable young woman. The woman left the office and Katie found herself with Sam, minus the painkiller grin. She eyed, she eyed him warily. Ever so gently, he pressed the door shut. Cupcake, we need to have a long chat about privacy. But first things first, my headache screaming for painkillers on three. He tossed his steps under the desk, sauntered over to the filing cabinet, the main office area. Katie marched after him and planted her feet. You told her she cured you. His eyes sharpened, displaying both irritation and lively intelligence. Little white lies, she gave it her best shot. He reached for the painkillers and extracted two red pills. I'm sure she did. Knowing she had to speak up, Kate Britt had burst either. Do you always use your office to indulge in that sort of activity? Painkillers have disappeared. Along with a shallow uh, swallow of coffee, he grimaced before answering. I was a win-win. It was a win-win. She needed ego boost. I needed TLC. He st- shook out another pill and tried swallowed. What? You had pity sex with her? Aggravated expression crossed his face. Who said anything about sex? You had the bridge of his nose again. She gave me much to kill my headache. All I did was listen as she poured her heart. How her idiot boyfriend ignores her. Claims she's not sexy enough. She left here a whole lot richer and prepared to rip him a new one. Those exact words. Straining an eye roll, Kate looked toward her crown. You're a prince among men. His eyebrows shot up. I am. I really am. Aren't, you, aren't I? I hope you realise she mentions you. Huh, mash to your boyfriend. You better watch your back. Won't be the first. You sound pretty proud of that, of the fact. Katie looked her, locked her hands together. Her reservation about sharing office with him were growing up leaps and bounds. Hey, you might put the couch deal to use again. Next time with a groff, groovy, the real deal. Note to self, purchase disinfectant wipes. He picked up his hat, slapped it under his head. Well, now this has been fun and pra- playing in the traffic. I escort you to the door. I'm staying here until the grand opening, she was contemplating. The most tactful way to explain her presence. Then, without apparent provocation, she he stopped, stu- he yelled, Stop. A purse shot into the red air- alert zone. At this rate, she better place an older, portable defibrillator as well. Once she unglued her tongue for the roof of her mouth. She 
she asked. Are you always this explosive? Sam smiled, revealing a double row of gleaming white teeth. I hope you didn't have food in your purse. She yanked the purse to safety, while Rex flopped to the floor beside her. Why would you care? Rex is a fur-encased stomach with four paws, a gullet and sniffer. He howls whenever there's food around. You call it a food alarm. That warning, he bowed again. Down. Don't even think about it. A throaty grumble alerted her to the wet black nose, snuffing her purse again. Thanks to the warning, she clutched her purse to her chest. Rex ate my lunch. Names after brand restaurants I brought on the way here. Do you know raisins of bran provide vitamins and plenty of fiber? The healing power of fiber is a much important factor in maintaining. She broke off in mid-sentence. Sorry, I swear, I need barrel when I feel stressed. This time, he smiled, look, gentlemen, you must be uber distressed at the risk be a disgusting fibber. Why didn't you tell me why a pretty lonely thing like you paying me a visit? His voice was as smooth as warm caramel. He had a feeling he wouldn't do a happy dance. He explained how Harrogham had given her content blanche to all guys carry his grand opening along with the instructions to share the junior partner's office. Since his duties included keeping Sam in line, she assured him, assumed he'd be reporting to her. Katie drew herself up to full five foot four inches. Her smart pump provided. You must, you might want to sit down on this, she suggested, gesturing to a chair. Mummy is sick, but I love you. Cheryl Slade. When you're a child, it seems like nothing bad can happen to your parents, but sometimes it does. You find your life turned upside down. It can be a very scary time. Mummy's sick, but I love you. By author Cheryl Slade, it's a conversation and a promise for Mummy to her child. Now that she's ill, Mummy can't always do everything she used to. She promises that she wants, that once she's better, She'll be capable of doing it again. Mummy explains to her sweetheart all the things that might happen while she's sick, but assures her child of never-ending love and the things that be better than she will, she's well again. Mummy's sick, but I love you. Comes from Slade's experience after her diagnosis for breast cancer. Then she couldn't find a suitable book to explain what was happening to her young son. She decided to write her own. The result can help others who are facing similar situations. I give this book a five-star recommendation from the Holes of Email podcast show.